We continue this morning in our series on 1 Peter. The Apostle has spoken of our salvation, of our living hope, of this heavenly imperishable inheritance, of our being kept in the midst of suffering by the power of God. And all of this, as we saw last week, makes us the privileged people whose eyes have seen and whose ears have heard the things that even angels long to look into. And so here, beginning in chapter 1, verse 13, where we are this morning, Peter turns to his first piece of ethical exhortation. That is, based on the indicative, namely the the statement, the indicative statement of what God has done in Christ, he now gives us the imperative. He's given us a bunch of indicatives. These are the wonderful things that have happened in Christ. Now he turns to what we are to do in response. Having been birthed into this hope, having been made heirs of glory, how shall we then live? And so we'll make two points here. Hope and holiness. Hope and holiness. So first then, hope. Hope brackets this text. It opens with a reference to hope in verse 13. It closes with a reference to hope in verse 21. We'll take the final reference, the one in verse 21, first. In verse 20, Peter's referring to Christ. He says, he was the one who was foreknown before the foundation of the world. The saints were said to be foreknown right at the opening of the epistle, and we said back then that that essentially means elect. To be foreknown is to be loved from all eternity. Virtually identical with the idea of election. In fact, if you heard the New Testament lesson, the NIV translates this and says Jesus was chosen. Chosen from eternity, elected to be the Messiah. But he was revealed or made manifest, the text says, in these last times for us. Now, since this is going to come up a lot, it's good to notice this. Peter loves the word revealed. He who was revealed is ready to be revealed again. He who has wrought salvation is ready to reveal that salvation. So, the text says, Christ has been revealed for our sake, who through him are believers in God. God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. Gave him glory. Now, glory, and you'll know this if you're in the evening service with any regularity, glory is an eschatological word. It refers the majority of the time to the world to come, to the resurrection of the dead and the glory of the new creation. Christ was raised from the dead and given glory. So the glory that the church seeks is embodied, resurrected, immortal, indestructible, virus-free glory in conformity with Christ's exalted, risen glory. And because we believe in this risen and glorified one, the text says our faith and our hope are in God. It's simple enough. Christ in his glory is our hope. So let's now look at Peter's first imperative back now at the beginning of the text in verse 13. 
Therefore, you know, because you have this living hope, this salvation ready to be revealed, this heavenly inheritance, therefore, some translations say, be alert or prepare your mind for action. Be dressed or ready. More literally, it's gird up the loins of your mind. This, this image of girding is referring to like a garment that might have to be pulled up or tucked in so that you'd have free and vigorous movement of your limbs so you could move swiftly. It evokes then, being girded evokes alert expectancy, right? That atmosphere of vivid expectancy which pervades the New Testament, often lacking in the modern church, but it is on every page of the New Testament. This girding up of the mind Mind here means the whole inner person. It's a metaphor, right? Girding up of the mind is a metaphor for preparedness, readiness, for our Lord's coming. Jesus uses identical language in Luke 12. We heard that in the gospel lesson, which said, be dressed. But other translations say, let your loins stay girded and keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home. So, with minds ready like this, Peter continues that we should, saying we should be sober-minded. Be alert, girded up in the mind, and sober-minded. The opposite of, of being scattered, going through life, dabbling in this thing, and flitting to that thing. Sobriety here is a kind of intellectual and moral self-control, a sort of intensity of focus, clarity of mind. And like, like the word glory, sobriety has the smell or the coloring of the eschaton about it. Sobriety. Peter will say later in this epistle, in chapter 4, the end of all things is at hand, Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Speaking, speaking of the day of the Lord, coming like a thief in the night, Paul, in 1 Thessalonians 5, says this, So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. So the end, eschaton is just a word which means end, the end sobers one's mind focuses one's mind, fixes it. And that causes much else to vanish like the smoke or the vapor that it is. Having this kind of sober, girded, focused mind, Peter then says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's the word revelation again. Jesus who was revealed is about to be revealed. We saw two weeks ago, his salvation is ready to be revealed. Your faith is going to result in glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice Peter speaks of a singular event here, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So later, again in chapter 4, he will say this. Rejoice inasmuch as you partake of Christ's sufferings, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is 
revealed. There's both words together there, the glory word and the revealed word. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1 that we are eagerly awaiting the revelation of Jesus Christ who will sustain us until the day of the Lord Jesus. In 2 Thessalonians 1, Paul says eternal judgment is ushered in at the revelation of Jesus Christ from heaven. So there is no doubt what Peter is speaking of when he says the grace or the blessing to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's speaking of the second coming, the unveiling of Christ in his glory. In fact, the NIV makes this explicit, and you heard it in the New Testament reading this morning. It just says, the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. You can put this in the language of the book of Hebrews, which says that Christ, having been offered one time for the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save for the salvation of those who eagerly wait him. It is that salvation which Peter has in mind when he speaks of the grace to be brought to you at Jesus' coming. Now, I have labored this point. I've labored it so that we can see how absolutely radical, how otherworldly, how oriented to the end, how heavenly-minded the apostle is. Think of this. To a suffering and harassed people, he says that with girded and sober minds, we are to set our hope fully on this coming of Christ. This is what he tells the early church. And the word set, fix your hope, It's an urgent word. It's a command to us. It means fix or rivet or fasten your hope. Take your hope and rivet it. Nail it. Drill it. Fasten it to this. Fix it fully, the text says, meaning unreservedly, absolutely, totally. Fix your hope totally on the coming revelation of Jesus Christ. Not Not partially, but our hope is not partially fixed on this. Nor is our hope even primarily fixed on this. Totally, Peter says, the total hope of the church is the coming of Christ in resurrected glory. No earthly consolations can repair the sufferings that we endure in this life. They cannot give us back our dead. They cannot restore and undo the ravages of the past. And no earthly consolations can quench the church's thirst for her Lord's face. So from the beginning to the end, the Christian life is hope in the revealing of Christ's glory. And it's precisely in Peter's mind because our hope is safe. right? Remember, your inheritance is kept. It's imperishable. Because it's not subject to the swings and the ebbs and the flows of time and culture and politics. Because you have this kind of certain hope 
You can bank on it. Your inheritance is kept in heaven, imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Therefore, set, fix, rivet, fasten your hope on that. Totally. This is the hope which does not disappoint. Indeed, it cannot disappoint. And this hope, again, we said this last week, it's not just out there, merely something we affirm about the future, right? This is a hope which invades, invades us from the future. And it pervades and infuses the Christian soul. In short, this is the kind of hope which produces holiness. And that brings us to the, to the second point I'd like to look at here this morning, holiness. Hope produces holiness. The Christian life works from the future back into the present. Or from heaven to earth. From hope from hope to holiness. It takes some getting used to to think this way, I think, because we tend to want to think the Christian life works from A to B to C to D. But actually, it's D that conditions A. It's hope which creates holiness. And Peter calls us to holiness. In verse 14, he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions in your former ignorance. Right, We've been begotten again, birthed into a living hope, and that requires, it demands, a kind of lifelong reordering of our disordered desires. Right? Put negatively, we are not, not to be conformed to our former passions. Peter also puts it positively. He says, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So we're not to be conformed, you know, molded by the world, but transformed by the renewing of our interior lives, intellectual lives, but the totality of our inner emotional being. We are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We have this summons to holiness. Now, I don't think it would come as a surprise. Most of you know the basic definition. Holiness means separate, separated. It means other than. Radically pure. But here we can see something very lovely about it. Holiness is reflecting the beauty and the glory of God himself. Notice it's God who is himself the standard of our holiness. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Right? We heard that in the Old Testament lesson from Leviticus. So there's a, a lovely simplicity to holiness. It's conformity to the being of God. It's reflecting God in life and in deed. What's holiness? It can be reduced to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. It's a lovely thing. And not only that, not only is God the standard, he's the source and the guarantee of your holiness. Because this call to holiness would be a thing that would create nothing but despair in us if this were not the case. It is a certainty. You shall be holy. You shall possess the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You shall be holy because I am holy. I am the source and the guarantee of your holiness. Or to put it in terms focused on the Lord Jesus... 
John says, when Christ appears, you shall be like him, for you shall see him as he is. And since you are destined then to be perfected in holiness, right, to be irradiated with immortal splendor, Peter says, now be holy in all your conduct. The hope creates holiness. He gives us a further motive to holiness in the middle of the text in verse 17. If you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Notice, there's the, second, there's the coming judgment again. It's just never far away for Peter. If you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. So there's a, there's a lovely balance here. The one whom we call father is also the one who judges each, is, each person's deeds and does so impartially without respect of persons. The father is the judge. So intimacy can never become casual or nonchalant or irreverent because God our father is the judge. But also, also, our sense of fear can never become terror. Right? It can never become soul-destroying terror because God the judge is our father. That's the line we walk in Christian piety. Right? We address as father. We have that extraordinary privilege to dress the living God as father. But remember, he is the one who will judge impartially. So if you do that, if you call your father the one who is the judge, then Peter says, conduct yourselves in fear, meaning with healthy dread, with, with reverence and awe. Right? This fear here is the wellspring of life. It's the beginning of wisdom. But notice, it's connected to our hope again. Conduct yourself in fear, he says, during the time of your exile. Conduct yourself in fear during the time of your exile. We saw what this being exiles meant in our very first sermon in the series. Peter uses a slightly different word here. He uses a word which means one who is on a temporary stay. A resident alien. Someone then without citizenship rights. Someone who's looking for another country. A heavenly homeland. All Christian ethics, all, all Christian ethics is exile ethics. How long does the church have to be holy? How long does she have to fear God? Until he comes to impartially judge each one's deeds. That's the period of the church's exile, namely her whole history. So Peter is calling us to be people whose hopes are fixed fixed completely on the grace to be brought to us at the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And such people are exiles who live in holy fear. In verse 18, he gets to perhaps the deepest motive of all. We live this way, he says, knowing that we were ransomed from feudal ways inherited from our forefathers. Again, you can see the Gentile background of of these Christians. Um, It's unlikely that Peter would speak of his own Jewish inheritance as futile. So we have experienced, he says, this great deliverance, this ransom that was offered not with perishable things like silver and gold, 
but with the precious blood of Christ, the spotless Lamb of God. Or in Paul's words, you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. So Christ, who is our hope, is also our sanctification, our holiness. So we could probably rephrase the text from Leviticus to say something like this. You shall be holy because the triune God revealed in Christ is holy. You shall be like him. You shall bear his image. So let us, let us conclude. It's the contention of this text that we cannot be holy. That we cannot live in reverent fear without being fastened to the hope of Christ coming again in glory to judge the living and the dead. There will be something misshapen about our Christian lives, our attempts at holiness, if they are not driven from this vision, from this end. Right? Because hope here, it does not merely move from us to God. It's not simply that we are hoping in God or we have aspirations for the future of God. But more decisively, what's happening is this vision, right? the glory of Christ's coming appearance, flows from God into us, creating hope and focusing it, fastening it. That's what's happening in this text. The glory which is to be comes, comes down, if you will, by the Spirit, and it bathes and it invades Peter's soul, and it generates hope, and it shapes hope, and it focuses. Our hope is what creates our holiness. When this drops out of you, Christian holiness tends to be tinny and moralistic and rule-keeping and commandment-oriented. Right? It's not shaped by the future. It's just we've got a bunch of rules. We've got to keep them. It's, it's the living vision of Christ and his splendor which generates Christian holiness. It causes holiness. The deeper the hope, the deeper the holiness. Nor is this hope, this future hope, um, some kind of useless otherworldliness. This hope produces holiness, which means it produces a river of good works even now. As I conclude, I want to point to another passage. It's a a marvelous passage. It's in Titus chapter 2. All the themes of this text are in these short couple of verses from Titus chapter 2. There Paul says this. He says, the grace of God has appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. There's holiness, holiness. And this is a holiness of a people, Paul continues, who are waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's the hope. Holiness produced by that hope. And what's the result? Well, Paul continues in that Titus text and says, Christ redeemed us, redeemed us from futility, from lawlessness, to make us a people zealous for good deeds. So, it is just because we are waiting for the coming of Christ for the time when Paul says in 1 Corinthians, we shall all be changed in a moment, 
in a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, when the dead will be raised imperishable and the saying will come to pass, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? It's because our hope is fully set on, fixed on that day, that Peter can then say to us, be holy in all your conduct. And Paul can say, therefore, beloved, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Amen.